And in the darkness of the night, when I can't fall asleep, and this feeling of wanting to give up on things often will creep up on me when I least expect it. The desire to quit especially is strong during Labor Day weekend for pastors. Everybody gets to go camping, but the pastor. It's not fair. Steve, it's not fair. But I, uh, I'm serious, though. There, there's often this desire to just quit, especially for pastors on a Monday morning after you preach all weekend, especially after a long weekend like last weekend, the candidating weekend, and you start hearing back from people about your sermon, they didn't like it, or your leadership decisions that they don't like. And honestly, when I get in darker moods, I want to take the towel and throw it in. Did you know, just a quick question, did you know it's hard to keep everyone in a church happy like ours? I, just, I don't know if you knew that. It's kind of tough. But life is hard, and the truth of the matter is, if you're a believer and you're a committed member to a church, it makes living life doubly hard, actually. It'd be so much easier to quit everything, buy a teeny tiny house in Montana, grow a vegetable garden, buy a shotgun, and never talk to another living soul again. But for some odd reason, for some reason, God wants each of us to live in community and serve one another in close proximity. And that is hard. And then every once in a while, God will not just invite you to difficulty, he will compel you to join in suffering with his son. Where there's the dark night of the soul, and at times you will feel completely abandoned and alone. And even then, he asks you to trust him. We're going to enter into what I think is one of the darkest passages of Scripture in the Bible. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to read Matthew 26, 31 to 46, and the title of this is Alone. I'm going to start in verse 30 because it gives us a little setting. When they had sung a hymn, the disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away in account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away in account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to him, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So, in our study of Matthew, we are at the very end, the foot of the cross. Jesus is done teaching, it's time for him to finish what the Father has sent him to earth to do. It's the last day of his mission. And it's a dreadifying, dreadful, horrifying day. He's preparing to enter the belly of hell's beast, the center of this storm that sin caused. The red teeth of the monster we created through our rebellion is getting ready to bite. And he's asking his disciples to join with him as he begins the dark descent to the cross. And honestly, if it was me that had to follow him at this time, I am sure with just the oppression of the demons that are there, I would want to quit. I'd want to leave. Jesus and his disciples just left the upper room. And as verse 30 said, they went to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. He went there to pray. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, it's still there. Actually, Pastor Ken and Rhonda got back recently, and they said some of the trees that Jesus probably was at are still there. They're thousands of years old. But at the time of this writing, what we just read, it was just a garden of olive trees, full of olive trees. In fact, Gethsemane means olive press, where they press olives. And they make precious olive oil. So what you do is you take all the olives, put them in a vat, stamp on them, and then out flows the precious oil that the Jews used for many different things. This is also the same place Jesus is going to be crushed. So out of his life will flow the precious oil of salvation that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. Did you know one of the best ways to know what is true and authentic with your faith is do, during the moments when you are being crushed? And when you are being crushed, when you are being pressed, when the world's coming down on you, Satan wants you to quit. He wants you to quit because if you quit, the precious oil wrought by the Holy Spirit in your life will never be produced, ever. Satan especially wants pastors to quit, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. 
Actually, I just got a video text three days ago from one of my best friends in ministry, and he told me he wakes up every night with anxiety for the church and the people in the church. And he begged me to stay, to pray for him to stay strong because it's easy to quit. It's hard to persevere and let the Holy Spirit produce fruit in you. And here in Matthew's account of that night, we're going to give insight into something I don't think we really should be allowed to see. The Holy Spirit, through the Matthew and the other writers, gave us entrance into what Jesus was thinking on the night he was betrayed. And it's terrifying. And we're going to learn three lessons of this night. And the first one is very simple. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. That's what verses 31 to 35 is all about. Look at verse 31. I have it right here. You will all fall away, Jesus says, because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So what he's saying, because of him, and because we follow him, that puts us in the crosshairs of Satan's hatred and God's strategic work of destroying sin in your life. They both are doing it. It's a double pressing. Jesus says it like this. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Which means Christianity is not some silly board game we're playing. It is not a set of actions and traditions we dutifully perform on Sunday to keep God happy. That's not what Christianity is. Nor is it just a set of convictions we affirm. Well, I believe that. Well, so do I. Then I must be a Christian. Christianity is a battle between two kingdoms that want your soul. The writer Frederick Buckner said this, Christianity is a world of magic and mystery of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It is a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It is a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos, in a great struggle where often it is hard to be sure who belongs to which side because appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion and wildness, it is a world where the battle goes ultimately to the good, who live happily ever after, and where in the long run everybody, good and evil alike, becomes known by their true name and true character. There's two things about this verse that Jesus gives I want you to notice, which reinforces the idea that Christianity is not for the faint of heart. First thing he says is, the well, it's really in the bottom, the flock will be scattered, the sheep that are following the shepherd, are going to want to just leave and run. Jesus is quoting a verse from Zechariah 13, 7 to 9, and it's about a coming leader who's going to be rejected, wounded, and killed. And as a result, his followers will be scattered, which is happening right here in the garden. They're going to run. They're going to leave. They're going to deny him. But this is also a general principle uh, considering the reality of following Christ. You're going to want to just leave sometimes, quit. My question is, where did the American church start teaching this idea 
that being a disciple was going to be easy. And church was meant to be fun. Where did that start? Who sold us this bill of goods? Because I think we believe it. Anytime there's difficulty in the church, blowback from culture about what we affirm is truth, strong difference of opinion between members, or even a preferential dispute on something as benign as the color of carpet. People want to bail and quit. A few months ago, I was talking to a good friend who was considering ministry for a career. But they're not sure if they wanted to pursue it because they said they've been hurt by a few people in the church. And they have not healed from it yet. I didn't say anything for a while. Then I asked him if I could share my opinion. He said, sure, I'd love to know your perspective. I told him as a pastor of a church for 25 years, I don't think there's a week that has gone by where I haven't been hurt by someone in the church. There are many times I wanted to quit because of the nitpicking, backbiting, and predicting of catastrophic failure for the church. But I began to realize that if I quit every time I was hurt by someone, then I, I could never leave my house. And then he said, yeah, but that's your job. You're a pastor. And then I thought about it later. Isn't that every Christian's job? To be patient? and long-suffering with each other? Or is that just the pastor's job? And doesn't it say something in Scripture about how love never fails? Second thing Jesus says is some will fall away. The word fall away is the word that Jesus uses for stumbling block. The Greek is scandalon. He's going to be a stumbling block, and actually following him is going to cause people to stumble. Peter heard what Jesus said, and in his brashness and his confidence he said I will never fall away and it's commendable it's confidence in his love for Christ but it's also very prideful this confidence of Peter's you can't sustain it by just sheer willpower there will be times in our life when we think we're not going to fail we'll never stumble like all those other slackers out there But then when some unforeseen event or horrible circumstance emerges, the pressure in the moment can cause us to crumble because we're all frail. We're human. And as a human being, it means I have clay hands, heavy feet, and a broken heart, and we're going to stumble. And when you see other people fall, fail, Be very careful you think you never will. Here's here's the truth. For those of you who fail, take heart because it isn't in the failure where the real problem arises. It is in the response to the failure. There's two responses to stumbling. Two kinds of what I would say, they're not good, both of them are not good, but they're, they're true. And we see him in this passage. One is denial. We see it in Peter. Peter says, I'll never deny you. Three times you're going to, Peter. You're going to. In the, in the heat of the moment, you're going to deny me. Fear overtook Peter. And it was heavy. And then there's betrayal. Judas betrayed him. Both of these responses are considered acts of stumbling. 
Both are troubling. They're not good. But only one is damning. Denial is the temporary loss of faith. When you find your heart is questioning God in the darkness, you're wrestling with doubts. You're really not sure people are who you thought they were. And in that moment, you just, you do want to quit. But God knows we're dust. And he extends grace to those who are truly repentant, who stumble in their time of need, but who still hang on. Betrayal is a whole different deal. It's when a person not only quits, but they're done. They're done. I'm done. They say to themselves, I've had enough of this confusion and pressure and hurt, and I'm out of here. So they quit church, they quit the faith, they quit wrestling, and they give in to unbelief because the pressure's too much, and the road is too narrow. So the first point is, don't be surprised when following Jesus gets hard. Second point, and this is really uh, really important to know, salvation Specifically, what we're going to see here was purchased by Jesus alone. We didn't have a part to play in it. We find this in 36 to 44, which we read. As the scene progresses, the prophecy he just quoted from starts coming true. The disciples start scattering. Jesus brings with him Peter, James, and John. He asked them to accompany him into the dark part of the night to pray. But if you notice, they fall asleep three times. So he goes through his agony alone. He alone carries the load. Isaiah says something interesting. He speaks of salvation is only purchased by him. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm worked salvation for me. And this is more or less talking about when he comes back again, and he's going to come on Armageddon, Nobody's going to be able to stand up against him. And he's going to do it all by himself. But I believe the reason he's able to do it by himself the second coming is because he already did it by himself the first coming. And he deserves that right to conquer. He does it all alone in the garden. Take a listen to verse 38. He says, my soul, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The ESV says, it's overwhelmed and very sorrowful even to death. The internal turmoil that he's going through is so crushing, it feels like he's dying. Verse 39, he says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. May this cup pass. What cup? What cup is he talking about? Isaiah and Jeremiah say it's the cup of God's wrath where he has to drink down the deserved wrath of you and me to the very bottom of the cup, to its dregs. He didn't want to do it. And he was dreading the cross. Have you ever had a time that you were dreading the next day as you're approaching it? You just I remember one day I didn't want to go. I, didn't, I had to do something the next day, and I didn't want to go to bed the whole night because I was dreading it. And it's this inward turmoil that's actually worse than the experience you face. Jesus is filled with that same dread, anxiety, 
and terror as he considers the cross. Because he has to become sin for us. The man who knew no sin had to become sin for us. He was going to feel the direct abandonment of his father, which he never had ever in all eternity. He had to carry our guilt and shame, something he never had to do before. And then he had to die. And he didn't have to do it. But he did it. And in verse 42, he says, if there's any possibility, is there any other way? And if not, all right. Three times he begged God the same way, and it had to be sheer agony. I don't know what it's like. I don't know if I could describe it. I, went, I found a poem that I think kind of would resonate with us a little bit, but there's something about the garden when Jesus is in the agony that we really, we really don't understand the death, depths of it. Here's a poem by Samuel Davies. It says, see there, overwhelmed with agonies, prostrate, forlorn, my Jesus lies, panting, moaning, groaning there on the cold ground in midnight air, no friend. No kind assistant near, no sympathizing comforter. But all alone, unheard, unknown to the dark night, he makes his moan. To his own heaven, he lifts his eyes. Father, remove this cup, he cries. This deadly cup of bitter dregs mingled with wrath and pains and plagues. Dear Father, oh, remove this cup, yet if thy will decree it, that drink it I, or sinners must, rather than they should taste the gall. See, Father, here, I drink it all. Thy will it is, I should atone. And Father, let thy will be done. See, sinner, see the cruel load with which your sins oppressed your God. Your sins extort these hollow groans for you. For you, Jesus moans. You so ungrateful, so unkind, so prone to cast him from your mind, and can your stubborn heart endure to grieve, forget, and slight him more? And it just talks about how we don't realize what he did for us in that garden. I'd call this the dread of death, that moment when it's worse than the actual physical, the physical suffering. The German term, it's Martin Luther wrote this term. I, I tried to pronounce it in the first service. I'm not going to do it. It'll be up here. He believed the internal dread that is being experienced in the garden, that was experienced by Jesus, is the real death. He could face death on the cross because he already faced death in the garden. He made up his mind. Once he made up his mind after the third time, he could do it. Here's what Luther says about the sufferings of the spirit, the pangs of the conscious, the terrors of temptation were always more agonizing and serious than the physical pain. When the wrath of God assaults a sinner, Hebrews says, in this moment, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Luke says when he was praying, he was being pressed and crushed so much his sweat was like drops of blood landing on the ground. Oil press. Here's a question for you. Have you ever felt that spiritual pressing where God's searching light of truth exposes you 
and lays you naked. And then you begin to understand that you cannot stand before a holy God on your own. Have you ever grieved over the sin in your life? Have you ever felt the despair outside the protection of Christ? I have a few very intense times. One time it was so strong that I knew I deserved those fires of hell. It's a horrible moment when you're found out, you can't hide, and all you can do is fall on your face and plead for salvation. It's, to me, this kind of dying, which we must all go through if we're going to get to the other side and find new life, the new oil of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the third point. Personal salvation is between you and God alone. Nobody can go there for you. You have to go yourself. In verse 39, it was the climax of the wrestling match. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. The wrestling match in the garden was all about surrendering his will to the Father's will. And it's in the surrendering we find salvation. That's what we procure in the pressing, in the crushing. We give up. And I believe that is how salvation that he procured is received also by us through surrender. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. It's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, no, thy will be done, your will be done. All that are in hell chose their own way. The battle for the individual soul is always fought in the arena of the will. It's e Did you know it's easy to voice your belief? Yes, I believe. It is easy to go forward at a service. It is easy to sing a song. It's easy to cry a tear. It's easy to wear a tie. It's easy to throw money in the offering plate. It is agony. Sweating blood agony to surrender everything over to God. And Jesus gave us an example in the garden of how to truly follow him. When he comes for us, he wrestles with us over the same thing. Your will or mine. What do you want? Philippians 2 says, says the same thing, but here's how it says. It says, we need to have the mind of Christ, and it's yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, though Jesus was God, and in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held tight to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So the whole idea is that he did not grasp it. He let go. He surrendered. In the garden, it was the ultimate surrender. All right. And I believe you surrender three things if you really want to procure salvation. I think the first thing you surrender is your desires. Pleasures, feelings, passionate lust, romance, the inward demand that I need to get what I want now. Just let it go. Jesus wanted to be alive. He didn't want to have to die for Chris Weeks. I don't want to die for that guy. It was his choice. I didn't do anything wrong. 
The father said, but Jesus, it's the only way Jesus on the cross will make it. You got to die. I don't want to do it, but I'll let it go. Your will. It's the same thing that God's will for you is to flee the evil desires of youth. Let it go. He let go ambition. This is what I imagine myself to be and what I think I deserve. This is the whole argument about rights and equity and letting me be the special and great person I've always dreamed of being. Let me do what I want to do. No. No. I need to fulfill the purpose for which God designed me. It's his calling, not mine. Honestly, we think we know what's best for us, but only God does. So let go. Quit grasping. And then the final thing, he let go is position. Satan offered it to him. You can rule the world. Just bow to me. Titles, land, control, control over people, control over situations, control over the things that you think you deserve. Trust God's timing and his work. Jesus gave up control of his life at the age of 33. He died. He still had his whole life ahead of him. He could have been the greatest leader this world has ever seen with the breath of his mouth. But he's like, I got to do something first. What's that? I got to die for Chris Weeks. Let it go. I am convinced the way you can tell if someone has really been bought by God is that they no longer grasp. God has beat the person in their own garden of Gethsemane, in their own soul, and he won. And when he wins, out comes the oil of salvation. But, must be entered by you alone. I have to tell you, i got to tell you, i got to be honest with you, pastor doesn't just say stuff because he's a pastor. I'll be honest with you, complete surrender is not easy. I hate it. There are many days I want to quit and just do my own thing. There are many times I don't want to forgive people who hurt me. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to ask for forgiveness to those I hurt. I want to fight for my rights. I want to be right. But I must go to the garden with Jesus and just let it go. I have to also tell you there will be times in your life when you decide to make decisions that are clearly obedient to Jesus and no one will join you. And you're going to be abandoned. And oh, is that hard. But I must tell you, Hang in there because the sweet oil is being produced. Though none go with you, will you still follow? I want to tell you a story about my dad. It's a quick story, but I'll never forget it. God had plans for my dad, other, other plans for my dad than religious contentment. He wanted more of my dad. When God wants more of a person, he uses a season of difficult testing so that the person being tested will reach out for him and find him. My dad was that man. 
The night of God's new movement toward my dad and his family will be forever etched in my memory. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, reading a book, while she was feeding my sister Lara a small dinner before she got her ready for bed. A normal, uneventful evening was already underway. It was dark outside, and we were simply doing what we normally would do, waiting for my dad to get home so we could eat dinner together. After I read a few chapters from my book and sipped down a few splashes from a can of Diet Coke, I noticed a large, silhouetted outline of my dad approaching the sliding doors that led into the kitchen. Before he came into the house, he stood in the darkness for about a minute, wiping his eyes. And when he opened the slider and finally came into the light of the kitchen, you could instantly see from the look on his face that something was wrong, terribly wrong. His posture was heavy and hunched, and his eyes had a faraway look. There was also a hint of shock and total defeat. The pain I could see in his eyes caught my attention most. They were bloodshot and swollen, still filled with moisture, and I knew he was crying for quite a while before coming to the door. My mom saw it too. Don, what's the matter? She dropped the spoon she was using to feed Lara, stood up and grabbed my dad's briefcase, then told him to sit down. My dad slowly slumped onto the, one of the kitchen chairs, not bothering to take off his dark blue overcoat, and announced, I've been fired. With a look of bewilderment, he continued, out of the clear blue, they fired me. They told me to grab all my things because they hired someone else for my position. It's over. I was a national sales manager for only three lousy months, and now it's done. We were all in shock. There we sat. No one said a word for the next five minutes while my dad dropped his head into his hands. My mom couldn't hold in her outrage. Don, how could they do this to you? You worked your butt off for that company. I don't understand. And then she made a quick comment born from the frustration exploding from her heart. And how could God allow this to happen? You've been faithful to him all your life. Why, Don? Why? My dad looked up, but instead of holding on to the despair he came in with, a fierce resolve came over his face. Rita, this is not God's fault. We can't praise God when things go well and then blame him when they go bad. We need to understand what he's doing because he's always up to something. He then turned to me, Chris, go get a Bible. We're going to figure this out together as a family. Something forever changed that day in my dad's heart. The loss of his job was the new spark that God used to rejuvenate his faith. He was now in hot pursuit of the living God. Being fired at the age of 55 completely obliterated his pride, but it also forced his hand to find God afresh. For most of his life, religion was a wonderful way to live. It was the right thing to do. It gave a great foundation for his family to build their lives up, but it wasn't enough. God wanted my dad, and for the first time, my dad only wanted to know God and his unvarnished truth. In order to build my dad's faith, God had to wreck the years of my dad. My dad spent building his beautiful framework of religion and tradition. It was hard to watch, gut-wrenching at times. But God knew it was what my dad needed. Jesus was on the hunt for Don Weeks. 
and he caught him. Some of you are going through terrors that nobody knows, anxiety that's dark. Some of you want to quit. But don't forget, it's in the crushing that the oil is produced. 